as we continue this morning looking at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, if you brought your Bibles with you, I would ask you to turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter, and uh, look down to the 17th verse, 517, Matthew 517. We're going to be reading Matthew 517 through 20. If you'll recall last week, Jesus told you that you are salt and light, that you are different because you have come to know Jesus Christ and you have come to be connected to God. Now, he's telling all those that are gathered there and he's also telling us these words. And so listen to them now. Do not think that I came to abolish the law. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You know, there's an urban legend in the Christian church that the Old Testament is over, that uh, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament, and that we live under the New Testament and not the Old Testament, that somehow uh, either God changed or he came along at one point and said, oops, I messed up back then. I made some mistakes. Let's just erase, erase. Don't pay attention to that. Now we're doing something new. And that's not what's happened at all. Jesus is standing there and he's telling his disciples, those who were Jews and also us today, that he did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to tear it down. He didn't come to do away with it. He didn't come to just take the Old Testament and wad it up and throw it away and say, okay, now we're doing something new. Instead, he said, I didn't come to change a thing. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill the law. And that word fulfill in the uh, New Testament is the same, means just literally fulfill, to fill it up as full as it will go. He came to complete the Old Testament and to continue with God's work in the world today. And you've got to remember who's talking here. And uh, it's going to get very interesting from this point on because, as I've said, the Sermon on the Mount, it builds, it builds. And there's just uh, one layer upon another the Lord has laid out 
what the life is like and what a person is like who has come to to be rightly connected with God. One who has realized that he can't or she can't make it on their own, that they are uh, those who need a savior and those who reach out to God. And then when you reach out to God, God reaches out to you. You know, Sharon and I were talking all the way in this morning about how uh, it says in scripture that many are called, but few are chosen. Have you ever wondered about that passage? Well, we just had it just totally illuminated for us in the car this morning. And I'll share with you our great revelation. And uh, it was my, I I shared it with her, so I'll take credit for this, just in case it's wrong. Uh, (laughs) Oh, really? No, the the part I'm talking about is, uh, we we, we, we talked back and forth, but the thing is, is that uh, uh, it says many are called, few are chosen. Sharon brought this up, but I remembered a passage at the, where Jesus talks about at the end of time. There's going to be a time whenever the sheep and the goats are gathered together. All the people are going to be gathered together. And at that point, judgment is going to take place. Many are called, but few are chosen. You know, uh, you look at that passage, you think, yeah, okay, everybody, the gospel call goes out to everyone, but there's a few special people that get chosen to do special tasks. That's kind of how that's usually looked at. But the gifts, the gospel goes out to everyone. But on the day of judgment, the Lord's going to stand there. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's going to say, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. You need to go away. I choose you. And there, sadly, there's going to be a lot more. You need to go away. Actually, he doesn't say it that way. He says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness. Remember, he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And here he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, among those, some of them are going to say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we... uh, uh, cast out demons in your name and didn't we do this in your name weren't we working hard for you and he's going to say i never knew you that ties right in with what we're seeing here you see many are called few are chosen he chooses those who reach out to him in desire to be with him and wanting to be his He doesn't choose those who just decide they need to be good and want to be and and do some good stuff. That's not the way it works. So remember who this is that's talking. There's so many people I've heard in the past say, well, if God, you know, this Bible is just so hard to understand, you know, and I just wish I knew what God really wanted me to do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, God became a man. He came to Jerusalem. He called as many people as would follow him. He sat there on the side of a mountain and he's sitting there and he's explaining to them just exactly what's expected of them. And God himself is sitting there 
and he's explaining things to you and to me. He's making it very, very clear. Now, we, we complicate things. We make it hard on each other even, just like the scribes and the Pharisees made it hard on uh, the people back in Jesus' day. And so he came to clarify some stuff. Who was it that came to do that? The author of the Old Testament. The one who uh, got the guys who wrote it to write it and who made sure they wrote down exactly what should have been written down. He said, not one jot or tittle is wrong. You don't have to worry about whether it's right or wrong or whether it's true or not. It's God's word. He wrote it. And it's not, you know, some people say, well, that's just the writings of men way back when. Yeah, it's the writing of men directed by God. And don't you think that if God can take dust and reconstitute it and raise someone from the dead, which is what we expect him to do at the last day, that he's not big enough to make sure that he got his word and that, that the Bible was right. And that if it was not right, that he would make a, make sure that we understood that we shouldn't be paying any attention to it. And yet, what does he do? He said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The Old Testament was his Bible. That was the Bible that they lived out of at that time. And if you recall, whenever he was resurrected and he spent time with his disciples, the thing that he spent a lot of time doing was showing them how the Old Testament passages all pointed to who? To him. They all pointed to Jesus. This one who is sitting there on the side of the mountain talking to us right now. The author of the Old Testament. And yes, now we can say in the author of the New Testament because he's big enough to continue to make sure that we have exactly what he wanted us to know to live by. He is the creator of every one of us and the world and the universe in which we live. Don't you think we ought to pay attention to it? He is the designer of life and he's the very source of our souls. This is who is sitting there talking. And so these words that we hear should not be words that we just uh, kind of look at dismissively says, oh, that's so sweet. And I love the comfort of looking at the Beatitudes and all. We need to look at them through different eyes and listen to them through different, different ears. And so today, this is what we're looking at. He makes it clear that he is the culmination of the Old Testament. And he is going to be uh, the culmination of the New Testament as well. Now, the Old Testament is divided into two parts, as Jesus mentioned, the law and the prophets. And he's telling us that what he's saying is in harmony with those and that he's not going to contradict it or diminish the importance of it or destroy it. Destroy it. In fact, he tells uh, the uh, scribes and Pharisees of that day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. There are three parts to the Old Testament law. The law and the prophets, as far as the law, there's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil or judicial law. The moral law is God's holy demands for his people, such as the Ten Commandments, uh, the thou shalt not, which, by the way, are still in effect today. Uh, The ceremonial law is the Old Testament system of sacrifices and offerings and feasts. And I'm going to look more at that in just a moment. And then there's the civil law, which was their actual government as a nation. Galatians 4.4, there Paul says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a man, made under the law. He was God in human flesh and subject to the same temptations that we are, and yet he never sinned. He showed us that the problem that we have is not these uh, bodies. Our bodies work just fine. The machine in and of itself is just fine. Our problem isn't a mechanical problem. Our problem is a spiritual problem. That's what he came to show. Because uh, our spirits have been corrupted, we aren't born without a sinful nature. Later on, Sharon and I were talking about this also. Later on, he's going to be talking about how uh, if any of you would, uh, ask, if your children would ask for this or for that, he wouldn't give them something bad, would they? And then he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to you? Now, he there just does away with the thing that all people are innately good. Let's face it, we're innately bad. That's what Jesus said right there. We're not all just good. We were born with the image of God within us, but that image has been sullied. That image has been distorted, and somehow it needs to be reclaimed. And that's what we see uh, happening all through the Old Testament, is this being made clear of our need for that. Well, uh, even in his trial and his death, there was no fault found in him. Remember, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. The Roman centurion stood there as he died and said, truly, this was the son of God. His enemies could find no fault in him. Uh, Now then, he fulfilled the moral law. He kept it when none of us could and none of us will ever be able to. The ceremonial law is uh, about the, it it brings, uh, that's the sacrifices and things like that. And uh, they are all types and pictures of the death of Jesus. And uh, just as Jesus fulfilled God's moral law in his perfect life, he fulfilled God's ceremonial law in his sacrificial death. 
And uh, what we see there, when you start looking at it, if you really look at it through the eyes that we're talking about today, is just incredible. When you look at the tabernacle, you see Jesus in every article that's in there. The fence uh, around it only has one gate, only one gate. If you're going to get into God's presence in the Holy of Holies, you had to enter through that one gate. So much for we're all going to go to heaven. We're just taking different roads. Jesus said in the New Testament, I am the door. He said, I am the way. In fact, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, this is another place where sometimes people take issue and they say, well, about how about all those people that died before Jesus came? Well, they don't get into heaven in any other way except through the precious blood of Jesus either. And it's right there in scripture. It makes it clear. It says in Hebrews that uh, going through the hero's hall of faith, naming all those that lived and died in faith before Jesus came, he said they didn't come into the presence and the, and, and the completeness of faith in any way except the way that we did. It's only through Jesus. And the thing is, if you look through the New Testament, you'll see. In fact, we they leave this out in our affirmation of faith as far as the Apostles' Creed, which says he descended into hell. We leave that out. It's got a little asterisk there, and it's written down in there. The original Apostles' Creed had he descended into hell because it's scriptural. It's there. When he was dead in the tomb, his body was dead, but his spirit was very, very busy because it said that he descended into Sheol. He went into the holding place of the dead. In the holding place of the dead, there was a part called paradise and there was a part called just uh, Hades. Good people were in, 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 in paradise and uh, the others were in Hades. And uh, Jesus talks about this. You remember the, the rich man and Lazarus and how they were the, the, uh, the, rich, uh, the, the poor beggar wound up in Abraham's bosom and there was this gap between them. But they could kind of, anyway, that's, that's, that's the, way, the, way, the way that it was back then. And uh, so he descended into hell and all it says in scripture that all, he preached to all who were there. You see, even those that were killed in the flood in the day of Noah, all of those people got to hear the gospel from Jesus himself. There's not a one that didn't have a chance to hear the gospel. He reached, he reached down. You see what the cross is and what the tomb does. God reached back into time and he brought everything up to the point of the cross. That's the focal point for the history from behind. All those couldn't come to know uh, God except through Jesus and couldn't come into a, a right relationship with him and be made righteous enough to get into heaven without Jesus and his precious blood being shed for them and them having faith in him. All of those yet to come, you see, look back on the cross. It is a focal point in history. It is timeless and it is crucial. That's the same word cross comes from, isn't it? Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Anyway, 
So this is, it is a, an extremely important point. It's the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's some people who say, well, what about those that died even in this day without having come to know or uh, to hear about Jesus? Well, we see here, God made a way for those that died before he was even, before Jesus was even born to hear about that. So I would imagine, I don't see this in scripture anywhere, but I would imagine that he can make a way to be sure that everybody hears the same message. The real question is, you have heard it, and what are you doing with it? You have heard about Jesus. You have heard that uh, you need to uh, receive what he did on the cross, appropriate it personally for the forgiveness of your sin. You have heard that. What have you done about it? You have heard that he wants you to follow him, to take up your cross daily and follow him, to live under his kingship, under his lordship. And that doesn't just mean, yeah, he's the king. That means, Lord, what do you have me do today? I am your representative right where I am today. I am salt and light. Help me be salt and light for you where I am today. You have heard, what have you done with it thus far? That's the real question for this morning. But let's get on back to see how all this Old Testament stuff that some people want to just throw away all points to this. Whenever you, uh, uh, we'll see the tabernacles, gates, and colors even symbolize things about Jesus uh, when you come to the brass altar, it's a picture of judgment and you have a perfect male lamb to sacrifice in order to go any further. That's a picture of Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's phenomenal. You see this scarlet thread of redemption starting in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell away and he animals were slaughtered so that they would have skins to wear as clothing. And then we see Abel offered a lamb for himself. Did you know that, you know, it's, people don't pay any attention to it, but if you look at the, the words there in, in Hebrew, Abel was, it says he was a keeper of flocks. He was a shepherd. He took the firstling of his flock. He took a lamb and that was his offering to God. Then uh, in Exodus Moses said that every family had to offer a lamb. So you see a progression here. Now there's one lamb. There's one lamb for one man. Now there's one lamb for one family. In, Levit in Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, one lamb was, in, was slain for the entire nation. So you have a lamb for a man, then a lamb for a family, and then a lamb for their whole nation. But then the Old Testament came the New Testament, and as John the Baptist looked and saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. After the brazen altar is the brazen laver where we see Jesus, the water of life. Then you enter the holy place and you look to your right and you see the table of showbread and you see Jesus, the bread of life. You look to your left and there's the golden lampstand indicating Jesus, the light of the world. Another aside, 
Have you ever noticed that no matter what church you go into, up front there are always two candles? You ever wonder why there's two candles? Do you know why there's two? Anybody know? Sharon knows. (laughs) Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you. The reason why there are two candles is because we remember the fact that Jesus was very God of very God and very man of very man. That he was God and yet he was man. And you can't separate those two. Anytime you try to take away from his humanity, you get into heresy. Anytime you try to take away from his being God, you get into heresy. He's very God of very God, very man of very man. So there was the candle, the golden lampstand indicating Jesus, the light of the world, and straight ahead's the altar of incense. Jesus ever living and making intercession for us as our great high priest. You enter through the veil that Jesus tore a path through and you approach uh, the throne of grace and there you find the Ark of the Covenant and inside are the tablets of stone with God's moral law, the commandments written on them. And there's also Aaron's rod that budded, just a dead stick that was brought back to life. And wow, there's Jesus' resurrection. Also a jar of manna for Jesus, who is our provision, who is our nourishment. Manna was white for his purity. Manna was round for his deity. And manna that fell as a gift from heaven, right where the people were. And you can still come to Jesus today because he is right where you are. He'll take you right where you are. Atop the Ark of the Covenant is a slab of gold, a mercy seat upon which blood was sprinkled as the, by the high priest. And so now when God looks down upon the moral law in the box, he looks through the blood. You and I haven't been able to keep the moral law. And so praise God that Jesus kept it for us and then fulfilled the ceremonial law doing away with the need for the veil, the priest, and all the pomp and circumstance, and no more blood is required for an offering. You see, he came to fulfill the ceremonial law. It says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for who? For us, for us. He fulfilled the moral law, the ceremonial law, and also he fulfilled the judicial or the civil law that was given to Israel just as a nation with God as the leader in a theocracy. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he turned to the Jews and he said, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. In first chapter, first Peter chapter 2, makes it clear that the new nation is the church. And so Jesus fulfilled the civil and the judicial law in the establishment of his church. And now we are his nation under his leadership or lordship, if you will. Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the law. Well, we're going to be looking uh, 
Well, that, that's just the law. Prophets. He also came to fulfill the prophets. You know, there are over 333 fulfilled prophecies about Jesus. And I'm not going to go through every one of them this morning with you, okay? Um, but uh, he was born of a virgin. He's of the tribe of Judah. He came in riding the colt uh, of, a, of a donkey. He's betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He stood silent before his accusers. Lots were cast for his robe. His feet were pierced. He was laughed at and scorned. He was thirsty and crying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of those things about the cross are found in Psalm 22, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. If Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about his first coming, don't you know that he's going to fulfill all the prophecies about his second coming? Some don't believe the rapture is going to really occur, but that's okay. Not many, there are a lot of people didn't believe his first coming was going to take place. Some people, see, some don't even want to accept that it's taken off, happened already. In Bethlehem, it says he came to his own. He's coming back for his own. And seven years later, he'll return with his own to set up his kingdom. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And uh, he doesn't come, but and what he's going to be doing in the next little bit is going to be just earth shaking and shattering to those people that are gathered there. And in verse 20, where he says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They're on the side of the mountain. You could probably feel the wind blow as people went in just astonishment because who could be more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee? And he's going to unpack that in the days ahead. And in the next few sermons, we're going to be talking about how he wants us to fulfill the law, how it's different. He will tell them, you have heard But I say to you, you have heard the scribes and the Pharisees. Now then, this is what I say. And he puts himself forth as an authority greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And yes, he is a greater authority than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we need to listen to him. We need to hear what he has to say. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were, there was all the, it was a letter versus the spirit is what it comes down to. And they were kind of like W.C. Fields who was caught one time looking through the Bible, which wasn't really something he really relished, I understand. And so I said, W.C., what are you doing? He said, looking for loopholes. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees spent a lot of time doing because if you have rules and if you just can follow all the rules, then you can cause, then, then you can control God. And that's magic. Whenever you think that if I do this, this, and this, then God must do this. And yet that's kind of what the scribes and the Pharisees were wanting to do. And what we're going to see is he is much more interested in our relationships with him and with others than he is in how 
finitely you're following little rules and regulations. And so uh, we're going to be talking about that later. Ultimately, he's going to be telling us how to live a life that shows him that we really have faith in him and we really love him. C.H. Spurgeon once said, I want to live my life in such a way that when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I can say, Jesus, I love you. And for the Lord to be able to say, I know you do, Charles. I know you do. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.